I want to welcome everyone to our first week of our study, the book of Revelation and end times. Looking at this great book, the last book of the Bible, and this week is basically an introduction, foundation for how we're going to move forward. So I hope you enjoy it. This is going to be a biblically sound Bible study. It is going to be a traditionalist interpretation of Revelation, and I'm setting all that up today. That being said, it might deeply challenge some of your opinions and some of the things that you have heard to be gospel when it comes to the book of Revelation. Some of the popular fictitious interpretations of this book. And for some of y'all, this might be hard to actually today, and as we get into things, it might be hard for you to part with those things. And so I understand that. And so those might come into play in our discussion, especially the weeks to come. But also for, for all of us, I think, and many of us, I think it'll hopefully free our spirits and open our eyes up to what God is doing, how God works, and what the true battle is in our life in past and present and future times. Um, we are not literalists when it comes to interpreting the Bible ever. Uh, the Old Testament is not written that way. Um, we're not studying the Old Testament, but the New Testament, uh, there are times when you can be pretty literal on things, but we are not literalists, and so we will not be looking at Revelation uh, in a literalist way, and you will see why as I teach more about that today. But the discussions we have will be in light of healthy theology, possibilities of the images that we see we'll talk about you know what could those be what could have those been you know those type of things um, and uh, I think to free us up to see Revelation for what it truly is and here's what Revelation the book of Revelation truly is and I just want to hit some highlights of what I think it is for us it's a call to repentance 100% John is writing this book to call seven churches to repentance, okay? It is an encouragement as well to Christians who are going through an oppressed time, okay? It's also a hope for the future and a reminder that God wins in the end, ultimately. It's also a book about the battle between good and versus evil, because there is evil that exists in the world. And you could also say it this way, it is a battle between godly and ungodly things, okay? Also, it is a beautiful picture and image of Jesus, who is the victor, the ultimate victor. And it is a picture of Jesus as the lamb, being a victor as the lamb, as our Lord and our Savior, as the first and the last and the eternal. And the images of Jesus that we will see in Revelation, this is a freeing for all of you in the establishment of where we're going to go with things. The images we see of Jesus in the book of Revelation do not contradict the ministry of Jesus that we find or the image we find of Jesus in the Gospels. Okay? I will personally say this, I think there has been some fictitious interpretation 
of the book of Revelation that technically takes the image of Jesus and the God that we see throughout Scripture and the Jesus we see in the Gospels, and it is contradictory to the very life that Jesus led and the understanding of love and grace and redemption and all that. So, that being said, again, this day is going to be probably not as much discussion, but a lot of teaching so that you understand the foundation of where we're at. I encourage you to take notes. If you want to take notes on a note card or something like that, and then you can put this in the back of your Bible. So, as people begin to think that the end of the world is happening, um, we can pull some things out and we can find some hope and we can find some understanding and you can speak intelligently to people as we move forward. So here uh, is, I would start with the title of the book. It is the Revelation, right? Revelation, there's not more than one revelation. It's not revelations. Um, that is actual, not, I think it comes from people's misinterpretation of the book. They think there's a lot of revelations in the book. And ultimately, there's not a, revel, a lot of revelations. It's, there's one revelation, and that's Jesus. He's the main character of the book of Revelation. Okay, The authorship, I'm not going to get into a bunch of, you know, hey, could this be John? Could this not be John? John would have been like 90 years old maybe, um, or 80, which would have been really an unusual age for back then. Um, but... I just going to take what I call the traditional understanding of this book, and I would say John the Apostle was the author. Okay, just makes it simple. He, he, the the one that was called the beloved by Jesus. So basically, this is during the time of Domitian is the most popular understanding of when this was written. They don't have a date, but between A.D. eighty one and A.D. 96, okay? First century type stuff. And so it was on the island of Patmos, which is most likely a prison island. John could have been an actual, we'll talk about later on, a refugee of war um, as Rome came in and totally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70, and John had to go somewhere. And so possibly he was captured as he was a refugee or maybe he was being persecuted for faith. We don't know how that happened. This was written in code. There is imagery within this, and so we can sort of figure out some of the code when we look at the characteristics of apocalyptic literature prophecy, as well as other images in the Bible and the understanding of who God is and who Jesus is, but it's, the code's been lost and we're not first century Christians and, you know, we just, anyway, so we can just be, we could be guessing on some things. Also, we have, we assume this letter, if it was a prison island, was smuggled off and that was why it was written in code and because it was written to seven churches and Anyway, there's a central message to Revelation. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Revelation 2.10. So this is a central message. Why, why is this being written? And this is under the first one of the first letters. And it's a call 
your, whatever your Bible might say in version you're using, call to be faithful until death in order to win the crown of life. That is the purpose of why John's writing, to call to be faithful unto death in order to win the crown of life. Now, he's addressing contemporary or current issues at that time for those Christians, and he's exhorting them to hold true and fast to their faith and not give way to the demands of the imperial cult. Now that's a term, imperial cult. What does that mean? The imperial cult was Domitian's court. Domitian, Caesar Domitian, Emperor Domitian, uh, a little timeline here. 64 AD, Nero persecuted the Christians they, he used them as a scapegoat, okay, because he had burned Rome. And he wanted to rebuild Rome, make it more ma magnificent. And so he basically started the fire and it killed a bunch of people. And so he just blamed the Christians uh, for doing it. He didn't really persecute the Christians for believing in Christ. He persecuted the Christians because he was using it as a scapegoat. Now, in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was totally wiped out. Jerusalem was totally wiped out as well. Domitian comes on the scene as a in 81, and he is a whole new threat to Christians, okay? And he demands Caesar worship. Caesar worship has been around since the first Caesar, but they weren't always serious about it. What it was basically was is you bowed down and you said, Caesar is my Lord and my God. Right? And so that would cause a problem for Jewish people. That would cause a problem for Christian people. Well, Domitian was really, really serious about that. He is imperial cult, basically. He was trying to infuse this throughout all the regions that Rome ruled. He insisted on this emperor, empire-wide establishing this understanding of empire worship and that he was Lord and God. He liked to be addressed as Lord and God. Okay, He insisted on it. And those who didn't want to worship him, aka the Christians, would die. So there was a lot of heavy persecution going on. So some scholars, or I've heard it with some scholars, there's potential if you Google, use the Googler, um, that believe that that isn't true, that there wasn't a lot of persecution going on for some reason during the time of uh, Domitian, but that's not the classical traditional understanding of things. Okay, so there's four groups that we need to understand. These are historical perspectives when you read the book of Revelation. Okay, you could you can almost say interpretations, but perspectives. And there's four of them. And the first is the the preterists, and it's spelled P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T-S. Preterists. Okay, this group um believes that the events were exclusively in terms that the things that we read in Revelation were a part of the first century setting, that the events actually did happen in some form or fashion and that uh, they already took place, okay? This is the preferred, I'm just saying, this is the preferred method for most scholars, okay? If, if you ask me, my, I would say that's my view, okay? 
This is the traditional view, okay, um, in understanding in, in, in for scholars. Now, the second group is the historists, historics, and that's the historic with I-S-T-S on it. So these folks believe that the events that we read about are in a long chain of events from Patmos with John all the way to the end of times. Okay, that's a perspective. Then the third group is the futurists' perspective. Okay, and they primary, primarily believe that everything that we read about will happen in the end of times. Okay, then there's a fourth group, the idealists. And the idealists believe that everything we read about, all the imagery, everything, everything is a symbolic picture of timeless truths that we hear throughout Scripture and has existed throughout history. And they emphasize the understanding of one of those truths being the victory of good over evil. Now, if you ask me where I would fall on that, uh, typically, the traditional understanding and theological with scholars and everybody uh, would be the preterists. That would be your Methodists, Lutherans, Catholics, Presbyterians, some Baptists, um, others in there, okay? That's your typical, like, for thousands and thousands of years, that's the viewpoint. Now, I would also say I would throw in a little bit of idealist a perspective in there that these there's timeless truths uh, that are that are being portrayed here and the victory of good over evil so the fundamental truths of revelation fully uh, depend on our viewpoints okay but we so thus we need to resist sort of this understanding that um, or this enam being enamored with the details. Okay, so it's important to understand the truths of revelation, it, it, but and they don't always um, they aren't. It's not so important to say well that might have happened here, might have happened here. But we got to be real careful to be enamored with the details, okay? And you could say that's more of a, we got to be real careful with being literalists on some of this stuff because we, we would, that's not how you would read this. So the images that we will see in the book of Revelation are images that are a part of prophetic writing, apocalyptic writing. They're similar to Daniel and Ezekiel and Joel they um, basically call for the reader to resist foreign domination, worship, stop, you know, resist foreign gods, like worshiping foreign gods, and then also how they would face uh, persecution and suffering. Okay, so those are kind of some common pieces of that. Now, here's the, the warning for us. Um, just because they're similar to some things we read in Daniel and Ezekiel and Joel, th those things can help us as we read through this. That does not give us the right or support the belief that all these events are a prediction of the world history for centuries or years to come. Okay? So we got to be real careful about that. Now, because John writes over and over in Revelation that he expects these things to come to pass immediately. 
If you like to read the Bible and you like to go by what the Bible says, read Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. He says, what must be soon take place? What soon must soon take place? Time is at hand. Time is at hand. Okay, all these things are... Now, we understand that Peter says a thousand years is but one day to God. So we can understand that, and there's some looseness there. Now, Peter and Paul also wrote, always expecting that things were at hand, okay? But for sure, John writes, things are at hand. These things are going to take place. These are coming soon, okay? And so we're going to get more into that, of course, during our study. There are some biblical themes that I think are vitally important I want to share with you, okay? And these themes help us interpret Revelation correctly and not fictitiously, okay? And John recasts images and visions from the Old Testament. So that's kind of sometimes what gets us off as well. The first theme is this, Jesus as a lamb, not lion. Okay, that is a big theme that we need to remember. Jesus is lamb, not lion. There's this mystical river of life that is flowing throughout, really, the history of the Bible. And it all comes from this source of life-giving, this throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus. Right? In Revelation chapter 5, if you got your Bible, you can swoop over to Revelation chapter 5. I'm not going to read anything, but I'm going to point out what it says. There's a scroll to be opened. God has a scroll. And... One of the angels basically says, who's worthy to open that scroll? Okay, this is a very dramatic scene in heaven, okay? John begins to cry because he doesn't see anybody worthy enough. And the elder says, hey, don't weep. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed, okay? And so remember what Scripture says there. Not will triumph in like 2254 right, when something happens in the future. But the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed, has triumphed, okay? He can open it, okay, basically he says. Now the next scene, we were making a movie. You would probably think, oh my gosh, here comes the fierce beast Lion Jesus, right? And it, the scene in heaven actually flips that because Jesus shows up as a lamb. And John looks at him and says, he looks like a lamb that kind of was slain as well. And the terminology that he uses for lamb there actually means fluffy lamb. Okay? Like, not fierce, not like, hey, I'm coming to show up and we're going to have World War III and I'm going to win all the battle against all the people out there in the world. It's no... The lamb shows up, the one that's not real strong looking. Now, does that make God wimpy? No, actually not. But Jesus is a lamb. Jesus has been slaughtered, right? Jesus has been killed, but Jesus is alive, right? We believe that. We believe he is resurrected. He is alive. He is risen. And so the lamb theology underlining revelation is true victory theology. Why does that matter? Because the second theme that we're going to be dealing with is victory theology themes, okay? And that is Rome, which equaled Babylon, equals Babylon in this book, okay? 
had, Rome had a theology of victory. Did you know that? They had a theology of victory. They worshiped the goddess of victory. I mean, it was like power and might, and I'm going to roll into your country and your town, and I'm going to take you over, and then I'm going to put up a statue of the goddess of victory, which in Greek was Victoria, and I'm sorry, in Latin was Victoria, and in Greek was Nike, like the shoes, Nike. Nike has a swoosh on the side of the shoe because the goddess of victory was a winged goddess, okay, that sort of resembles the wings of that god. Revelation, hear this, Revelation is a counter theology to the Roman Empire's theology and worship of victory, power, might. It's a total counter theology to that. Okay, and so we go, well, gosh, there's a lot of warfare in there. That's another theme. The third theme would be warfare. Okay, we're going to see a lot of warfare. This is a spiritual book. Most of the warfare that we're going to encounter is spiritual warfare. A war between the God and godless people. Okay, it's a war that we face in our own lives between the power of this life in the world, this power of oppressive empires or oppressive you know, things in our life or ungodliness versus the power of God's Lamb, Jesus, okay? Who was never spiritually defeated, ever, right? And brings eternal life and healing. So that's the type of... So if you have your Bibles, flip to Revelation 12... Okay, Revelation 12, and look at Scripture, verse 11, 12, 11. Okay. Okay, so this subheading of this thing is basically a huge conflict. This is how you defeat Satan. If everybody wants to know how to defeat Satan how God will defeat Satan, it all says it right here in the book of Revelation. Okay? Let me preface it with this. has nothing to do with tanks, has nothing to do with whether Israel is a state or not, has nothing to do with whether Russia comes back or doesn't come back, or the United States is the primary ruler in all the world or whatever. This is what it says. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb... A little fluffy lamb that died on a cross, blood of the lamb, and by their testimony. Bingo. You want to defeat Satan? Believe in Jesus because he's the saving blood who covers our sins, and then have a testimony about that. That's how you defeated Satan in the book of Revelation. So, anyway, so you hear my preaching coming out. So that's pretty strong scripture. That's important to us. Okay, so that's a theme. The warfare is a theme. The other part of one of the themes is judgment and holiness. There's going to be a lot of talk about faithfulness, purity. Uh, you don't get off the hook. I mean, righteousness, um, a lot of that stuff. Revelation chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 talks a lot about this stuff. Okay. Um, the other fifth thing is, a uh, theme I see is redemption. God's dwelling place now, it says, actually in Revelation 5, 6, that his dwelling place is now in with his people, okay? 
We believe the understanding is that God comes and dwells in us in faith through the Holy Spirit. Thus, if God dwells in us, we have to be fully redeemed because God can't dwell in anything that isn't redeemed. Okay, So this is a complete restoration of things. As it says in Revelation, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Okay, So that's a theme, redemption, restoration. The other thing, the sixth theme I see is worship. Worship is a huge theme in the book of Revelation. Revelation isn't a picture, though. I'm going to say this again. Isn't a picture of terror defeated by more terror imposed. Okay? It actually is the lamb already spilled all the blood that's needed to be spilled. Okay? If you want to spill more blood, that has nothing to do with the revelation. Okay? The lamb has already spilled all the blood that needs to be spilled. Worship is of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Um, Jesus is covered in the blood of his sacrificial blood. Okay, So this plays a huge role in that, and we worship God's victory and God, our testimony in God, not in... We don't worship other things, okay? The seventh uh, theme that I see that's important is living through times of deception and persecution. Perse persecution of Christians is real. It's real today. It was real back then. Perse uh, deception is real for Christians today. It was real back then. There was large groups in the book of Revelation that we hear about who have been deceived and must stand firm. You know, people need to stand firm because... There are large groups of people who are going to be deceived by all sorts of things in the world, whether it was future, past, present, okay? The other thing is we will see plagues. That's another theme, plagues. And so what do we do with the plagues? Um, plagues are not a prediction of things to come. They are a threat of things that could come, okay? The ultimate goal of talking about a plague is um, to get people to repent, okay? The destructive forces and things that go along with this is to just actually is to scare people <laughs> to repent. Um, we will hear, come out, come out of her, okay? We will hear that in Scripture. It's also a slight retelling of the imagery of the Exodus, Jesus being the new Moses, okay? And I just think about who acted in the book of Exodus. It was God that acted with the plagues. It wasn't, it wasn't mankind. And how many times, if you know your Bible, I mean, Moses would go do something. He came and to, to Pharaoh and said, hey, let, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, nah, I don't want to let your people go. And like something happened, the plague happened. And then Moses does what? He comes back and gives another chance, right? And Pharaoh's just hard-hearted. Pharaoh isn't going to change. He never repents. Ultimately, then more plagues, more plagues, more plagues. So the sixth trumpet, okay, in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, if you're writing down verses, the sixth trumpet happens. And this is one of the plagues. One third of the world's population is killed. Okay. Let me take us back to warfare. The majority of warfare that we're going to see is an image of spiritual warfare. Okay. 
If you keep reading in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, it talks about how people did not repent, thus they died. Okay, so we're dealing with a lot of spiritual death here. I'm a pastor, I want everybody to know Jesus. There are going to be some people that don't care, and they ultimately spiritually might die. Um, I'm not God, so what God's going to do with them? We'll let God figure that out, okay? But we need to understand the consistency in Revelation has to match up with the God that we know in the book of the Gospels, uh, the Gospels and, and the life of Jesus and other parts of the Bible. God is not a cosmic destroyer, okay? Um, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? God died for the world. God died for the people. God doesn't want to bring on World War III. God so loved the world that he gave him World War III, you know, because it says in Revelation that we should have World War III. That's not exact, that's like fictitious uh, interpretation. Okay, so let's have one question and time for y'all to kind of talk from a standpoint of answering one of my questions I give you. And uh, so you can take yourself off mute if you want, if you want to even answer this. But when I say the word apocalypse, or I say the word apocalyptic, what do you think of? What do you think of? Some people give me the, if you say the word, if you hear the word apocalypse, apocalypse now, apocalyptic, what are the, what comes to mind? End of time as we know it now. What else? Okay, massive change. That's good. Destruction. Right, right. Um, so, that being said, we had some very healthy answers in there. And then other answers were very modern interpretations. Destruction, end of times, end, the end, um, death. You know, we didn't say death, but those type of things end and destruction. So that is a modern interpretation of the word apocalypse or apocalyptic. Okay? That's not, and I'm going to say this, that is not a biblical interpretation. Got it? Everybody wants to be biblical. Okay? You're not biblical if you think apocalyptic or apocalypse means the end and destruction. Does not mean that. Never did during apocalyptic literature and prophecy, okay? I'm going to explain that before you think I've gone off the deep end. But this in Revelation 1.1 says this is a the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? You, if you like to be biblical, you can look at 1.1. I've referenced it many a times. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stick with me. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse in a biblical understanding, not the modern hoodwinked understanding and and Mad Max understanding, but actually the biblical understanding, traditional biblical understanding is revealing. It means revealing. It means unveiling. It uh, means... You could say a major change. Somebody said that. A major revealing, like something. 
revelation of Jesus. This is the apocalypse of Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. This is the unrevealing of things, okay? It doesn't mean disaster or death at all. That's not actually what it means at all. The popular association with the end of times in our modern society, really over the last 50 to 60 years, is not a biblical view. So if you want to be biblical, don't have that view, okay? Um, it does talk about the revealing, the uncovering of current state of the world, okay? Especially during John's time. Apocalyptic literature was very, very popular during the time of Jesus, during the time of the early Christians and, and the Jews. Um, in modern day, we could see it like this. Um, if I said, hey, that's a sci-fi movie, you would go, oh, I kind of know the characteristics of what's going to be in a sci-fi movie. Oh, hey, that's an action adventure. You know, oh, yeah, I kind of know. So when you said, okay, apocalyptic, you would know, okay, there's going to be some certain characteristics of apocalyptic literature, but ultimately it's going to be this unveiling, um, uh, this, uh, this uh, revealing of what could happen, okay, or is going to happen, those type of things, okay? So there's general characteristics. There's images in apocalyptic literature. In apocalyptic literature, there's also visionary journeys. That's what John's taking. He's taking a visionary journey into heaven or into the spiritual realm. Visionary journeys, they often, at this point in time, just like I would say, like in sci-fi has particular characteristics, visionary journeys would have an encounter with a shapeshifter. You would have encounters with animals. We're going to see tons of animals. You're going to see beasts in there you're going to see angels all these things have to do with apocalyptic revealing unveiling uh characteristic of this literature okay in the apocrypha which is in the catholic bible um, we study it in seminary but uh, we don't usually use it in the protestant bible the uh, prophet ezra or the character ezra he actually has an apocalyptic journey you can go read it and in that book, but there's a meeting that he has with a talking lion, and he also has it with a weeping woman who turns into a city, okay? So this is a very common characteristics of the literature at that time. There's a lady named Barbara Rossing, and she's a seminary professor. She writes the book, uh, The Rapture Exposed, okay? And she basically compares and, I, and I, that's why I have to use her name because this is a brilliant comparison. She compares apocalyptic journey literature to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And it's brilliant. It's a great comparison, illustration for that. Um, it's Ebenezer Scrooge takes an apocalyptic journey. Okay, so just stay with me on this. His final vision that he has is with the spirit of Christmas future. He sees horrible things. He sees his grave and his death, all that stuff. And after this vision that he has, he then has a choice to either let it play out exactly like he saw or alter his life. Because why? We all have freedom of choice, right? God gives us freedom of choice, right? 
Well, what does Scrooge do? Scrooge chooses an alternative future. Even though he saw an apocalyptic prediction, not really a prediction, but an apocalyptic image of what the future might be, he chooses a different path and it never comes true. So the book of Revelation, John is, takes this visionary apocalyptic journey on behalf of the seven churches, okay? And John is transported in the future of the spiritual realm, and he sees things that could actually take place in the sense of spiritual death and, and, and all the current things going on in the world, and, and he has this journey for these seven churches. Now, John sees two contrasting images. He sees images of two cities, okay? He sees the evil whore, which we'll talk about at some point in time, Babylon, okay, Rome. He sees the merchants and the kings lament over the loss of all their wealth, okay? He sees that city, and they, he sees that city sitting on seven hills, which basically identifies it as Rome, okay? Then he hears an angel voice calling out to the Christians and, and it says re, to God's people, reject that, reject Rome, reject Babylon, um, come out. Remember we talked about come out, repent, come out from that, okay? Then finally John sees a alternative city of paradise, the new heaven, new earth coming to you know, this new heaven coming to earth like a bride, okay? He sees an alternative. And basically, we're invited into citizenship of this new alternative as we are faithful to Christ, we worship God, we renounce the things of this world, Babylon and Rome, in order to be a citizen of this new kingdom, this kingdom of God, okay? And so, the visions of Revelation terrify us a lot of times. They're like visions of the Scrooge's experience as we go back and look at A Christmas Carol. But they should inspire the reader to repent, and that's what John's really trying to accomplish, okay? Now, Scrooge was bound by chains in his life and his heart. You know, he had all, all this stuff going on where those literal chains, maybe it was his, his, his heart, right, was chained, this spiritual issue going on. Um, so that's where we kind of get in these literal predictions of the future. Revelation's primary purpose is not that. Its primary purpose is to change um, the life in the hearts of the readers, okay? Whether that's in the first century or when we read it, okay? Um, I always want us to remember this. Um, well, there's a great, let me read this quote. There's a great quote from Rossine's book, and she says this, The book of Revelation, like a Christmas carol, shows us terrifying visions precisely because there is still hope for us, for the earth. Indeed, the hope of the book of Revelation is that God's Lamb, Jesus, is already victorious and that God's people will be faithful to the Bible's vision of life. The hope is that we will follow the Lamb, renouncing all the seductions of the imperial injustice and violence so that the threat of the plagues will be averted. God loves the world. God does not desire earth's destruction. I re remind you of the gospel in a nutshell in John 3, 16 through 17, right? For God so loved the world that he, what, gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
God didn't come to bring World War III on the world, right? That's a little off of the God we know and the Jesus of the gospel. So, who is the audience that John was writing to? The original audience was the seven churches, and we're going to meet them and see their characteristics. This was a people who were oppressed. These were not people like us. We have a lot of stuff, right? We have food on our table, roofs over our heads. A lot of us have jobs. These are folks that were oppressed. They didn't know if they were going to die for their faith. Um, The Jewish war was fresh on their minds. The destruction of the temple by Rome, all that stuff. John himself might have been, like I said, a refugee of this war, and that's what kind of got him to prison or whatever. The audience really would, people, the scholars say, are God's little people. Um, Folks that didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have the latest technology, although we will see in Laodicea that they could be some pretty wealthy people there. But they endured Romans' violence uh, and their imperial power everywhere they turned, okay? And the end was not the end of the world, but the end of the Roman rule, okay? The, the, the end of Roman oppression on Christians and other people. This is important for us to understand and in the light of everything that, that we're going to hear because the Roman slogan at that time John was writing was Rome Eternal, okay? Revelation totally challenges Rome Eternal. Only God is eternal. It says, only God will win. God has a vision for the world. And it's not Rome's. It's an alternative vision to Rome's violence and power. Okay, and that's the reason why Jesus came. That's the reason why Jesus died. That's why we're called to faith, all that stuff. So, well, a lot of times when we hear prophecy too, we get a little, hmm, it's about the end of time. It's about prediction. Prophecy isn't all about prediction. Okay, Um, the prophetic gift, spiritual gift of prophecy has a lot to do not with predicting the future. It has to do with warning about an ungodly future. If you continue to do that, this will happen. If you continue to raise your children that way, you probably will find yourself in this position. Okay, does that make sense? It's a timely warning, not a prediction. Okay. Um, and it's a for here and now thing. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it actually says, blessed are those who hear. John is trying to bless those who hear. When you hear something, it's like right now, right? It's, it's a warning. You better be warned. You're going to hear this, okay? So, huge sort of controversial thing, depending on what you believe about Revelation, how you interpret it, things like that. We need to discard the popular understanding of the world, as seen in an unfictitious, this fictitious um, uh, interpretation of Revelation. Um, We need to claim the true biblical meaning of this. And so a lot of that contrasts with Tim LaHaye's fictional books, Left Behind series, um, and a lot of that stuff. And we'll talk more about that. Now, prophecy, again, doesn't mean prediction of the future. And it didn't in Christian tradition, and it didn't in Jewish tradition. And if it does now, it's probably not biblical understanding. It's probably somebody made it up. And so let me speak to that. In the last 50 to 60 years, uh, the Christian industry of prophecy has sprung up. 
it is really has been since basically um, 1948 when Israel uh, was proclaimed and had a statehood. Okay, um, there's this industry that sort of has sprung up. This prediction of future world events. Um, you can hear this in your in your daily narrative, right? Even in your biblical narrative, uh, in detail. Like we're gonna, it's all about the rise and fall of particular leaders in uh, the Middle East. Um, it's the importance of this, the importance of that. It, again, it's influenced our um, our foreign policy and, and things like that. We have found, I would say, to use revelation in this manner as 100% inaccurate and unbiblical. Okay, it's not the traditional biblical view. Um, I would say this, many Christians, many, many, many Christians have been hoodwinked um, because when we read this book and we try to interpret some of this understanding of this book, it won't be as fun as knowing that the people that don't believe like we believe are going to be wiped out and they're going to be killed. Right? That's just more fun. makes for better movies and better books. It feeds our, oh, we're right, they're wrong. Okay? Um, and so those type of interpretations, Revelation is, can't be sens sensationalized like that, okay? Um, and, and don't turn me off yet, because I got a lot more to say when it comes to all that stuff. But um, let's talk about sort of Revelation as prophecy and, and, and what does that look like. It looks a little bit like Jeremiah. It looks a little bit like Isaiah. It has familiarity. Uh, to that, but at the same time, the task and the purpose is to speak God's truth, okay? Um, it's, it's a word of salvation. Um, prophecy and apocalyptic literature is like, it's like, hey, we want you to see what could be, and that's not good. That's not of God. They, he's got a better plan for us. He's got a better, you know, so prophets, they condemned injustices. They, they condemned all sorts of, you know, they, they tried to protect the little people, and um, they were talked about, you know, the poor and the widows and the orphans, and so these are all characteristics of that. Their preaching of destruction was a warning to people. Uh, that if you continue on this, it's going to be a destructive behavior and it's not going to be a godly thing. Ultimately, it's going to be terrible for the world and for you. Okay, Again, the more fictitious interpretation of Revelation and the prophets, prophets and stuff like that makes for better books, better movies, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the future is not determined yet. Okay? Because ultimately, you and I can't know the future, and we can't read a book and know the future. Only God knows the future. And Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to return, and so he doesn't know all that. I mean, so we have to be real careful of pre predicting all this stuff. So the biblical truth about prophecy is, is that the outcome is always conditional. Just continue to remember that. The outcome is always conditional. If we respond to God... What does the Bible tell us? What do you know about God? He is merciful and he is forgiving, correct? Well, he doesn't throw his characteristic of who he is out just because we have some other interpretation of Revelation. You have the ability to change your future in that sense of the outcome is conditional on your response 
to God, and God is always merciful and He always forgives. God's character doesn't change, right? God so loved the world that He's going to give us World War III. No. God so loved the world because He loved the world and He wants everybody to come to Him and know His way. So, now that I've gotten you all stirred up, perhaps, um, and you think I'm, some people might think, well, he's being heretical and, you know, or whatever. No, actually, the other people are being heretical. Um, they're being unbiblical, and it affects our views of life, other people, foreign policy, all those things. Um, first of all, uh, what was it Priscilla and I were talking about? Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? See, God, uh, we don't need to help God fulfill his predictions in Revelation. I think he's got it covered, right? And maybe God wants those predictions not to come true. Ultimately, he wants us to repent and live in a different way. So again, revelation means to reveal, to make known. Hey, this is what's going to happen. Don't do that. Stand strong. Be a part of faith, okay? So I'm going to have to go over probably five, ten minutes. So if you have to bow out, that's fine. I'm going to close up with supporting some things. You're going to say, well, how do you know that this is the way we're supposed to look at things? That's just your interpretation. That's somebody else's interpretation, whatever. Well, I'm going to talk about how the other idea of some of that interpretation, we're going to get more into it, is not a biblical interpretation. It has nothing to do with just historical or traditional understanding. Okay, And so, I'm going to read to you a verse from the book of Daniel, okay? This verse, actually, I'm going to bring you some the theological terminology here. Dispensationalism. Raise your hand if you've heard of dispensationalism. Anybody? Dispensationalists. Okay. Dispensationalism means gaps. So just think of gaps. Thousand-year gaps, okay? Uh, dispensationalism, um, they believe, dispensationalists believe that God created gaps, like thousand-year gaps in Scripture, okay, in prophecy, okay? And I would just say this, it makes for great fiction because you can write whatever you want in there. Let me read this uh, founding verse of this dispensationalist particular dispensationalist understanding of things. And I want you, right, I want you to listen to this verse, and then I'm going to come back on, I'm going to say, somebody tell me where you heard a thousand or two thousand years or anything. If you're a literalist, like dispensationalists say they're literalists, reading scripture, I just want you to tell me where you've heard it, okay? It says this, now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 72 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, who would they say would be Jesus, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed and appear to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise, whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty 
with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, you will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Anybody catch where the thousand or two thousand years is where God stopped history? Anybody want to take a gander at that one? I wouldn't. So it says, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And then some dispensationalists who claim to be the biblical know-it-alls put a thousand, two thousand years in that scripture right there. And then continue on with the end of times and a ruler will arise, meaning the Antichrist. Where they get this stuff is very important for us to understand. In 1830, in Port Glasgow, Scotland, there was a 15-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald. She had a vision at a worship service, a 15-year-old teenager, and she saw in her vision a two-stage return of Jesus. Remember how Jesus said, I will come again, and throughout Scripture, you probably think there's a second coming, right? Anybody raise their hand? Second coming of Christ, right? We believe in that? Well, if you're a dispensationalist, you actually have three comings of Christ. Haven't really figured out where that is. But anyway, we're going to talk a lot more about that later on when we talk about the rapture, okay? She saw that Christ comes halfway down and then raptures up all, her all his people. So he comes not once and twice, but he comes a third time at the end as well. And so in 1830, she had this vision. A guy named John Darby, who is a British evangelist, thought it would be a great idea. I really like this. So he took it and turned it into a Bible study and began to teach this. John Darby didn't get too far because the more traditional biblical interpretation really didn't have anything to do with a 15-year-old having a vision and rewriting scripture, right? Even in Revelation, it says, please do not add to this, okay? And he took that thought and he developed it into dispensationalism. And there is a whole world of dispensationalists out there now. That's where you get the Tim LaHaye's and, and all those sort of things. Now, it wouldn't have found much progress as a concept or an idea, but there's a guy named Schofield. Anybody heard of a Schofield study Bible? Perhaps you have, but maybe not. Schofield was a crook, criminal, left his family, slept around, thrown in jail a lot, but he was a brilliant marketer. He took his interpretation of the Bible, and what he th did was he took some notes, and then he actually added in John Darby's dispensationalist theory ideas, and he put those in the Bible. Man, those are fun to read. Because as science became more technical and said, hey, if you do this and you do this, then you get this, right? If you do this with a light bulb, you get this, right? And so religion was like, well, maybe not so much. But now if you had some, if you do this, you do this, you do this, then you get the end of the world. Does that make sense a little bit? Okay, so it really helps the narrative and people feel more comfortable with it. So basically this fed the popular concept. So this is a new thing in less, less than 200 years old, basically, uh, concept, which is not the biblical understanding. It's unbiblical. It adds things in gaps, dispensations 
into things, but it is the most popular version in, in modern society. And even if you hear me saying this, you're probably like, really? I swear my those people that know the Bible better than me, they would say that that's biblical, and it's not, actually. Um, it's the more progressive, even if you want to use that terminology, in today's world. And so it's sort of the fictitious thing that sells books and movies. I'm going to go back to that. Um, so we're going to talk more about that and what does that mean with the rapture, uh, things like that, because if you read the book of Revelation, you're not going to find the rapture in the book of Revelation. Um, that is actually dispensationalist taking that from another scripture, which Paul writes in Thessalonians. And again, that's a misinterpretation, takes it out of concept, um, out of context of what Paul's writing. Is there a rapture? We'll talk about that, of course. But um, does this cause a problem for you? Probably. Does this free you? Um, for understanding the Bible in a way that doesn't contradict the Jesus that you know, 100%. And Revelation should be that. Now, we are going to see some terminology, okay, uh, in Revelation. We're going to talk about the tribulation. We're going to talk about the rapture. Um, the scholars say, a lot of scholars, most scholars, the popular, you know, more traditional understanding of scholarship means the rapture is a uh, racket. You know, it's a good marketing tool. So, um, and then uh, literalism, we'll talk maybe more about that. We're going to talk about um, millennialists, pre, post, millennialism. What does that mean? Present age, you're going to hear terms like church age. You're going to hear terms like uh, eternal state. You're going to hear term, terms about Christ's return or second coming. We're going to talk about final judgment stuff. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. Uh, 666, which you won't find, but we can. you can kind of figure that out. Uh, you'll hear about Antichrist, Satan, all those sort of things. Numbers play a huge part, symbolic understanding of, of who's who and, and what's what. And so this is all foundational understanding to a biblical study of Revelation and not a popularized modern understanding and for many, it might go, wow, that rattles me a little bit because I swear Jesus is going to come again. I'm going to be driving my car, and all of a sudden, I'm not going to be in my car. My car is going to run into an unbeliever and kill them, and they're going to hell. I mean, there's or Jerusalem has to be rebuilt. The temple has to be rebuilt. And until the temple's rebuilt, Jesus can't come. I'm sure Jesus isn't waiting around for the temple to be rebuilt to come. Um, these are all modern gimmicks that have been made up through dispensationalists, added to Scripture. And so this is an awakening, a time for us to truly study Revelation in a different way. Uh, it's not even, to me, another interpretation of Scripture. It's actually more of a fictional understanding, those type of things. So we're going to look at Revelation from the context and possibilities of what does this imagery mean to us in today's world? What is, you know, our current Rome? You know, we can look at that. What is our current oppressor? What is our current, you know, uh, what is the thing that we're given into? Um, there, there's going to be a lot of challenging to our challenges to our own hearts. So,